Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Well, hello, everybody. It is a good night to be together. Um, it is book club. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let Di- Diana is hosting tonight, which is so awesome. I'll introduce her in just a minute. As folks kind of uh, come in, uh, we, we like to give you a minute just to kind of center yourself um, uh, and, and to let you know what's on the horizon, the red letter Christian world a little bit. So there are lots of things, that a lot going on, y'all. But we're still responding to uh the escalation of violence uh in gaza and um and this is not over i mean this is uh munther isaac just told us that 70 percent of the buildings in gaza have been destroyed 70 percent um the other building schools and things like that so even if you know the war ended and everyone was told to go back i mean over half of the buildings are destroyed so there's going to be a major need for love and compassion to pour out so we're going to be following all that um and we are centering a lot of our palestinian friends that are theologians uh christians that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, in fact, all the way to the sweet Lord Jesus born in Bethlehem. Uh, If you didn't know, Bethlehem is in the West Bank. Um, And um, so we are going to have Dr. Munther Isaac as our special guest this month for morning prayer on December 1st, nine o'clock Eastern time, early out West. Sorry, (laughs) y'all. You got to get up for the crack at 6 a.m., but... um, uh, but they're going to be uh, at least month or maybe some other friends from uh, Bethlehem and Bethlehem Bible College will be joining us. But you don't want to miss that. So spread the word. Um, and if you don't know, if you're new to morning prayer, we do it every month. Jonathan Wilson and I host from our common prayer project. This was a, um, by the way, the little ribbon on the front was because we we didn't want on it. So our compromise was that they had to put it on something that you could take off. So morning prayer there. Um, and there's just like dozens of people that help craft this. And if you, um, a lot of it's online at commonprayer.net, but uh, it's a good time to get it because we begin the year with December at the birth of Jesus. So if you haven't started reading Common Prayer, you can grab it. You can grab it digitally, too. But um, uh, this is a good time to join us. And December 1st, we'll be kicking off the new Christian year um, in Advent and the sweet Lord Jesus's birth. So just a couple other things that are going on. Um, we, we've got uh, a shop. I know a lot of folks listening from other countries or from around the U.S., but if you are anywhere near Philly or looking for a road trip, we are chopping guns all the time at Raw Tools Philly and repurposing them into our garden tools and other beautiful things. Actually, Katie's been making these rings out of the woodstock and we make these hearts uh, out of down brass. Special holiday uh series of events from and this is all on our social media but december 9th through the 15th uh every evening we'll be demonstrating transform guns and melt them down we'll be doing it live in the shop we'll live stream some of it but uh get out here get out here and uh a better way to celebrate the birth of the prince of peace than by chopping up some guns and declaring a different vision for the world and the violence we see all over the place um 
So uh, that's going on. I got a thing on Wednesday I'm doing at Penn. If you're in the, in the Philly area, I'm teaming up with Con- our musical friends, Diana's written songs with them. We've we many of us have written songs with them. A bunch of them out uh, at Penn to do an event night, seven o'clock. Um, all that's on our socials. And Reverend Sharon Risher, I see you on the chat uh, or on the on the line here. I'm going to be hitting you up to come join me for one of these events that I'm doing in Penn. Uh, but anyway, enough sharing although okay one more thing uh, we're gonna have like some really exciting stuff lined lined up for 2024 and we're teeing it up with a big end of the year campaign i know there are lots of great groups to give to in fact we support groups doing great work but you're going to hear a big announcement from us about some things that we have going on next year uh and we are really really excited about it I almost said too much, Diana, but um, they're great. We're going to be doing some cool stuff and um, we want you to be a part of it. So keep an eye on our socials, keep an eye out for like the big push to have to um, get enough and pull some of these things off that we want next year. Because next year, yes, it's an election year. It's also time, American history and the world right now. So that's why we do this stuff. And we like to do as much as we can, like club for free so that money is never an obstacle to people joining, having great conversations, joining conversations like the one tonight. I am so excited about book club tonight. I'm also excited that I get to like hang back and listen. Um, like, like many of you, I, sometimes I'm hosting and sometimes I'm listening. Um, I, Angela Tucker is, uh, one that I've admired from a distance and I've gotten more and more familiar with. Diana's going to introduce her, but you're in for a treat. So let me pass to my friend, my colleague, Diana Ostrike. If you don't know, she does wear one hat working on Christian. She is also uh, an incredible friend, peacemaker, training people, and the art an art and a discipline of peacemaking in a world of violence wrote um i mean a lot of great stuff but one of her books waging peace it's right here on my it's on my top shelf where the where the really nice stuff is and so you can ch- check out diana's books but she's hosting tonight and has a lot of um, rich depth to conversation with uh, angela tucker so diana great to be here great to hang back and listen thanks for tuning in everybody Man, Shane, thank you for the sweet introduction and that my book is up by the nice ones. So uh, check it out, y'all. Um, we need peace more than ever, but I am so excited to introduce you to somebody that is really one of my heroes. Um, Angela Tucker, she is changing something that I think not many people have the courage to um to talk about and to invite us into so angela tucker she is amplifying adoptees voices and and she literally is folks like i i kid you not she is changing the system um of adoption and foster care by changing the lens that we see it and she has so much hope and so much firsthand experience that i i'm an adoptive mom and my son told me tonight, he was like, mom, tell her that, you know, that, you know, that I'm adopted and throw that out there. So uh, from my son to you, hey, as he says, um, but we're just, I think it's one of these things that we understand there's all these different intersections, but people have no idea until they hear your voice, Angela. And so I am so honored and excited to have you here today thank you i'm so excited to be here and i love that your son said that and that's actually a marker of change in that so many adoptees are feeling more confident to share publicly their identity as an adoptee which for a long time it was something that if you're the same race as your adoptive parents you may not talk about and those of those like myself who are transracially adopted, we may have felt frustrated that people could just tell right away, but I'm trying to support change in that we can identify as adoptees confidently. And so I love that that he did that. 
well, he's hyped, which is truly um, an awesome thing to bring to the table. But one of the things that um, just the Red Letter Christians movement, we really believe in changing the narrative by changing who the narrator is. And so I just want to welcome you. And before I give you, give everybody your really cool bio, I just want to tell everybody, you do not have to have read Angela's book. Um, we're going to center this conversation around Angela. We are going to learn from her. And you're also going to need to buy the book because you'll be so like excited to find out. Um, it's kind of an appetizer right now. So stay in the conversation. I will read some really amazing sections uh, from her books. So just feel free to relax um, because this conversation is going to reframe adoption and foster care through the lenses that we're all looking around, looking at how do we change racism? How do we change this thing where people um, with low wealth are treated as disposable and without the dignity that we know they should, and especially as people from all different types of denominations from the Christian faith, there's really been a harm there. And we want to uh, press in that and see how we can be agents of dignity. So Angela, Will you give us a little bit of your family, like of origin and your location, kind of your social identity that you bring into this call that people might not know by looking at you? Uh, family of origin. So I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and was immediately placed in foster care and was then adopted across the country to Washington State, where I grew up in this beautiful, idyllic, small town of Bellingham, Washington, which is kind of between Seattle and Vancouver, Canada. So I grew up there with my eight siblings. My parents adopted all of us. My parents are white and they had one biologically and they adopted all the rest um, from foster care, all of different races. And I grew up there. I'm now in Seattle, Washington, where I live with my husband, Brian, who is a filmmaker. He got his start filmmaking when he followed my journey to find my birth parents. Um, and at the time he wasn't a filmmaker, but I asked him to kind of film a little bit of it because it was so overwhelming. And that really snowballed into a full-fledged documentary that went on Netflix and Hulu and iTunes. And that was just a surprise to us all, but pretty wonderful way to catapult some of these conversations that I'd been wanting to have. Um, and we also live with a wonderful 21 year old who just needs a little support in her life. So that is our family and a cat, our, our sweet cat named Grandma Pearl. I am so dying to ask you about the cat name right now. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot to it. We got her when she was old so we just decided the grandma name was cute and I think we had a foster kid in our house at that time who chose the name Pearl which is so sweet um that's it that's grandma I love Pearl. it <laughs> I totally love grandma you would be shocked at how many people I interview and their pets names have just like the wildest names and then the wildest stories Deep, um significant stories and meaning or not, but just really funny. So um, <laughs> so if you don't mind, I want to read. Um, this is your book. And it is called You Should Be Grateful. Challenges the fairy tale narrative of adoption, giving way to a fuller story that includes the impacts of racism, classism, family, love, and belonging. Um, Angela Tucker describes in this book, how it's possible to work for a future where communities embrace and in, and support birth families so more kids are staying within their families. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful cover, and I am going to read. I'm going to read you one of just the beginnings to give people a little um, little context. So it says, in an effort to quell my active brain, my parents encouraged me to journal about my observations. In one entry, I wrote. People always tell me I'm so lucky. Is that because no one else wanted me? Did I win the lottery of parents? I thought about the words used in conjunction with my adoption. Many of those questions resurfaced during my tenure at the adoption agency where I worked after completing my undergraduate degree. 
feelings of not being wanted, fears of being seen as ungrateful, confusion about where I belong. These feelings have followed me my whole life. I tell the audience as I conclude my talk, for many adoptees, these are lifelong questions, and it's a lifelong journey to find the answers. I am on this journey, both in the micro and the macro sense, both for my personal healing and for the adoption and for the future of the adoption industry. I don't have all the answers, but I know where the answers can be found in the real life experiences of adoptees. I invite you to notice the ways the adoption industry slash ministry currently centers adoptive thoughts and feelings, adoptive parents' thoughts and feelings, and to instead pivot towards centering adoptees and their voices. So that's just a very little intro. Um, and so that gives people a little bit of background, but I want to keep going if that's okay with you. All right. So um, throughout my childhood, my parents taught us to see ourselves as complete human beings and demonstrated to us how not to let anyone make us feel small. My older sister was born premature, weighing just one pound, 14 ounces at birth. In adopting her, my parents became fluent in all the things related to wheelchairs, crutches, assistive technology devices, and anything else necessary to help her navigate the world. Cerebral palsy is actually the least interesting thing about her, yet it always seemed to attract the attention. What happened to her, strangers would ask. Looking over the top of my sister's head and directing their question to my mom, well, my mom would reply, she's right here if you'd like to ask her. I love how my mom always so gently reminded them that an inability to walk does not mean that she was also unable to think or speak for herself. Sometimes, though, we'd prefer the strangers to talk to our parents instead of us. Being overlooked was easier than having them gush, your parents are saints. While they watched my mom corral all of us into a van, then fold up my sister's wheelchair and hoist it into the trunk. I could never do that, they'd say. Then to my siblings and me, you must be so grateful. What did they mean by that? They could never adopt? They would never adopt kids with disabilities? They could never love someone who doesn't look like them? Did they see us as a charity case, kids to be pitied, representations of the consequence of bad choices? So there's so much more, but I just wanted to give a little bit of your voice to people. Thank you. So a little bit like in that moment, I'm sure that people outside of your experience have no idea that when they say those things, like this is what kids are feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that was where my title was purposeful. You know, I think the immediate knee-jerk reaction when adoptees read the title, you should be grateful, is like, oh, I hate that. I totally know what you mean. Like, there's just an immediate understanding. And at the same time, I, I often try to push back against adoptees ourselves to say, and we ourselves have likely used that phrase, perhaps in other spheres outside of adoption, that, you know, it's a little bit ubiquitous. Like it's, it's something that we all tend to say without thinking. And it's one of those kind of microaggressions where it's cutting, even if it was not intentioned to be that way. So well-intentioned good meaning people may say this. And so part of my hope was just to bring light to especially specifically adoptees. And once we kind of break it apart, it becomes really clear and easy to see how that could be construed as a microaggression. But if not, there's a lot of adoptive parents who don't notice how hard this is to hear. And so part of my hope is that we can bring light and see the adoptee lens of this phrase and then work to to change it. And I think that's such a powerful flip because like so much of the systems of just um, of culture, of religion, of capitalism, there's always been this narrative of who's the hero and who should be grateful for things. Yeah, yeah. Except in in social work and child welfare, it hasn't been always. It was 
around the 1940s and 50s when social workers decided to create, to, to make this system so that birth parents were seen as the villains, the babies were seen as the innocent victims, and then we had to have a savior, and that became the adoptive parents. But before that, social workers actually thought of birth parents as innocent victims as much as their child. So they were working to support both. It really changed with the medical model. This is when we needed to like categorize. And so that's, so it hasn't always been the narrative, but it certainly became dominant really quickly. And how can, because there's so many different um, ways that people's culture seem to give them the lens, but how, how has it really harmed adoptees? Many adoptees talk about feeling gaslit, feeling internally a sense of like, like I miss my birth parents or are they bad people? Why am I adopted? Those sorts of questions get squashed with the constant praise you know, you should be grateful. You're so lucky. Your parents are amazing. They're great saints. Like, oh my gosh, adoption is so cool. With those kinds of comments, there's really not a lot of space for adoptees to wonder. And the wondering, I think, is so natural and it's just human. So if that gets squashed, then we have what I see today, which is a huge amount of adoptees who are people pleasers, who are struggling with their mental health. One in four adoptees who seek therapy are attempting suicide right now. We actually have an adoptee remembrance day because of it. And I think the reason that adoptees are taking their lives, that they're struggling in that way is not because they didn't have great adoptive parents who took care of their basic needs, food, shelter, extracurricular. I think adoptive parents are doing that, but the place that they're, I think, stopping short is not allowing those comments to be so pervasive. They're not pushing back against those comments, which would feel to adoptees like, oh, you see me, you get me, you know, like to just do a simple thing. Like, I think I write about this in my book, but my parents would often say like, oh, what, what is she lucky for? You know, and just, just that act of pushing back and making the person think for a second for adoptees were like, we're seen, we get it. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I have teenagers and uh, validation, <laughs> just letting someone be seen for who they are and how they feel. Right. Um, I think that's so powerful for the dignity and just for the soul. Like we need to know that we matter on a soul level. And it, again, it's like... um I don't think adoptive parents are actively not doing it. I think there's just a lack of seeing that comment for what it is. So that's where we're having to teach adoptive parents. Let's think about this phrase and how it hits us as adoptees. One way I do that is for adoptive parents, I'm like, let's just pretend like your kid's birth parents are right next to you all day. And whatever comment you get, like, imagine that they're right there. And how would that feel to them? And when you do that, you're like, wow, that's really insulting that a stranger would assume that my kid was saved from a terrible place or that my, you know, whatever people say. And that helps adoptive parents start to see things from a little bit of a different lens, too. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, that's super helpful. So in your work with adoptees, um, you, you do something called the adoptee lounge. And so for people who don't know, that's basically a group where like people have been adopted, kids primarily, um, get to be there and you can really help them, um, kind of talk about the things they need to talk to that somebody without your experience wouldn't. So I guess a little bit of my question is for people who are watching, who come from different faith backgrounds, um, how do you see, how do you see faith impacting the foster care and adoption um, narrative or kind of system that we see right now? Pretty huge. Um, I think so many uh, evangelical Christian churches participate in the Orphan Sunday movement or talk about fathering the fatherless sort of language. And all of this kind of perpetuates this 
orphan stereotype, which actually people don't realize the word orphan literally means you have no mother, no father. But I think the church has really screwed up our language because many people assume that like I was an orphan and I had parents. They just couldn't parent me. And kids, most kids in foster care have parents. And so they are not orphans. And like this concept of fathering the fatherless, I think also really is hurting specifically black men and their ability to be seen as fathers, as loving caregivers. And that's, that has gone all the way to influence like judges whose really subconscious bias has turned to, to automatically think this child needs to be in the care of someone else just because of how not just Christians, but our laws and um, things have really made it hard for people to even conceive of black men as fathers. I experienced this when I was doing a documentary about this 85 year old man who had recently found his 55 year old daughter who got adopted outside of his awareness. And I was interviewing him and I was realizing how unusual it felt for me to hear this black man cry talk about how much he wished he could have parented her with details. Like she would have gone to this school. He, mm -hmm. he lives in Florida. She would have gone, she would have had this teacher. I would have put her in this club. Like, and as I was sitting there, I was like, this is a unique experience for me to have a black man speak about caregiving like this. And that was for me, a realization that as much as hard as I try to push back on those biases, it's really ingrained. And I really do think that the church has a lot to do with that specific narrative. I love that story so much. And in fact, I kind of teared up when you were telling me that story because um, there's just this erasure of, of, I think, Black fathers and, and even men in some ways that they're minimized, that their humanity of how much they want and are capable yeah. of of being a necessary part um in in a child's life i feel like there's there's just this magic that is there that i think we i don't know culture movies but there is just this big um people don't even ask you know we about often think about birth mom where's your birth mother what happened to birth mom you right? know um, so, and I also think I want to read everybody another part about your story, because I think it's one of these really phenomenal, I mean, your whole book has phenomenal stories that I'm like, everybody needs to read this, you know, oh, edge of your seat, you. um, mini series type stuff, but it's connected to like our humanity and how we love each other and believing that faith can be an activator for good, for mm. disrupting systems of harm and rebuilding them with a better imagination. Um, so it starts with your family. I think your family, your family, all of your families seem pretty incredible, but uh, this starts with your adoptive family. So it says, my family would periodically volunteer at the community meal program hosted by our local Catholic church. Volunteering increased my proximity to houseless individuals, which helped me to build an empathy with their plight. What's your favorite color? I asked each person while they came through the food line. One by one, they'd look down at me quizzically, caught off guard by the unusual question coming from me, a young girl wearing high top Nike shoes and a Michael Jordan basketball jersey. Blue, one man answered, as my mom plopped food down on his tray. Trustworthy, peaceful, dependable, I thought. Reflecting on what I had learned about the color in a book I'd previously read about color symbolism. Red, the next person in line replied. Fierce, bold, I thought, recounting the way Toni Morrison used the color red in Beloved. I have two favorite colors, pink and bright pink, a woman said as my mom dished up her plate. These interactions were transformative for my development and understanding the circumstances of my adoption. Volunteering at the soup kitchen was one strategy my parents employed to humanize the unhoused. And it was strategic, because not only did it help me to increase my compassion in general for people experiencing houselessness, but it also humanized my birth mother. Everyone that came through the food line became layered. 
I recognized that not only were they in difficult circumstances, but they likely had hobbies and interests that may have been like mine. They had a backstory to their lives. If this person is houseless and has a favorite color, then my birth mom probably does too. So man, I just wanted to read that and just ask you to talk about a little bit about, you know, like the way that you write about your family and how they lived their faith. It wasn't about serving folks. You talk about um, showing up because it was part of justice and it was start of having an interaction with humanity, not people who were also happened to be experiencing homelessness. Yeah, my parents really, I feel like their outlook is very kind of Unitarian Universalist in a sense that it's just very social justice minded first and foremost always. And it's not about evangelizing or preaching, but just by doing. Um, and, and just- do you think that, did that come from, because uh, you, you mentioned in your book that you went to mass and your parents were Catholic. Um, I did not grow, I grew up Baptist. And so Catholics were like very separate in my community. Like if you were one, you knew what everybody did and why. But if you weren't, you were kind of outside the Catholic club. Yeah. So I, so I think maybe I'm just less familiar with, um, I didn't grow up very familiar with like Catholics and especially um, social justice minded Catholics. So no, you could they went, give okay, a little bit yeah. of that. Yeah. I'm not sure if that went hand in hand, but yeah, we did attend Catholic mass, which was very uh, buttoned up and like, you know, sit, stand, kneel, stand, sit, <laughs> doing all that. And um, we were a unique family because we were so large and multiracial in this predominantly white community. I, I think they're how they lived out their belief in the goodness of humanity, what I write about and what I learned from them stems from Heather, they really felt like we were procreating at a rate that was outpacing our resources. <clears throat> and that feels a little antithetical to Catholicism, but they weren't feeling that my mom is, my parents were both hippies They're big on like, um, environmental justice. And that really carries over to their desire to adopt from foster care. And my dad's um, choice to get a vasectomy early on. And they also would house refugees. One of my siblings is not formally adopted, but she was a refugee from Laos, fleeing a civil war. So there was a lot about like, our American history and then an understanding of the world that impacted people's ability to care for their kids. And this kind of belief, especially with foster care, a belief that the kids in our state care are our responsibility and we should not look away. So I'm not quite sure how all of that fits in with their Catholicism and their beliefs, but it did they did take advantage of opportunities where we got to be in closer proximity to people who were different than us. And I think that it wasn't a direct, uh, it wasn't a direct strategy, like bring them to these people and then they'll think broader about their biological family. It wasn't that it was more like as we're driving down the street and there's a homeless person on the side of the street begging, how do we teach our kids to not like just avert their eyes and look away um, and instead to be curious and gain an understanding that 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 person is all of us. And I think that's a beautiful message, not just for adoptees, but for, for all of us. I want that for all of us. Yeah. I, I think, you know, like raising kids and even just humanity. I'm like, nobody stops. Um, I'm not, I'm never going to stop learning how to love the person next to me in a way that I, I've not been able to see that before or see them before. And so I love that your parents 
um, had this belief that that connection mattered, that humanity was connected. And um, so I was wondering if you kind of want to talk a little bit about how in your in your experience as you got to it's an incredible thing everybody needs to watch it on netflix her story of finding her birth family but the connection that you started to just unravel with um birth mothers and then also being unhoused and the way that people with low wealth um that this was all kind of connected in foster care and like why are kids being uh being being taken out of out of their kinship families and what could look different for this and because i think everybody at red letter christians is here because they care to actually start to make these things um look more beautiful and put the love and the dignity back in the connection and part of that is showing up for this housing crisis and the way that families are really being um being torn apart just because uh, and poverty poverty is this thing that has been took place on such a personal level and as a community i'm like it's our responsibility that we get the joy to reframe this and actually change how we're being um how we're being together for the thriving of the kids and the birth mothers so um how did you start to see these things play out in your story one conversation that i have anytime i can get the opportunity is to have folks like judges, attorneys, child welfare workers, your neighbors, have everyone think of, um, define the difference between poverty and neglect. Those things are often conflated and this is really harmful. Um, I don't think I learned this for a while. I think I assumed that perhaps there was neglect happening in my life and that's why my birth mother couldn't keep me when in reality it was poverty that she herself did not neglect me but there she was in a system and in order to really define this you have to know our history especially for black women in the south like my birth mother we have to understand the Jim Crow laws redlining mass incarceration and how all of those things actually contributed to who she came to be when I was being conceived and it contributed to what people saw when they looked at her. Um, so it's important to think about, I also think about the, um, and I write about sundown towns, which are found all over the country. And these were the informal way to keep segregation alive by sundowning saying, you know, if you're black and you're out past the time that the sun went down that you could be beaten or arrested. So those are types of things that have to do with like one's ability to take care of themselves first and foremost. And then if you are pregnant, the difficulty to take care of your child too is just immense. And that does not constitute neglect. It doesn't constitute someone that doesn't want their children or doesn't love their children or can't parent them. It's, it's a responsibility that's greater than that. So that's one um, one thing that I'm always asking folks, like what is what do you see as a difference? And if it's hard to articulate, then we've got to do some work on it because otherwise that's our implicit biases that are running wild and assuming this person doesn't love their kids or we need a savior to come in and rescue them. Right. And there's also, you know, like I'm not so sure in what years, but, you know, Back in the day, there's that stigma for women that if you were unmarried, if you wanted any chance of getting married or staying almost like in good stand in your community, you couldn't you couldn't keep this child. And so I think there's also that stigma for women who are just trying to live within this society that it was not okay to be a single mom. Absolutely. I mean, I think about how that conversation has come back with our abortion laws and Roe v. Wade and all that's happening. But when we, in the fifties and sixties, we would send women away to go give birth. And usually it was by nuns. So I think again about Christianity, Catholicism, religion and its role. One, one place we have to understand is there is a negative connotation for many older women with 
with regards to parenting and the faith, because these nuns are people who supported the idea that they needed to give birth, then go back to their home and act like this never happened and that they would put these kids in better places. And so that is another example of um, when we think about how your question about how we can improve the system, it's really important always to think about what you represent, not necessarily who you are, but what you represent. I have this conversation a lot with um, therapists who I'm teaching that want to become adoption competent for their clients. And if they're white, people, white women specifically, and they want to work with black and brown transracially adopted kids, I'm teaching them about how difficult that might be an inherent barrier, unfortunately, for them looking at their therapist who represents and reflects their adoptive mother and all of these other white people who've been making decisions in their lives without their power. So it's it's that's a really tricky thing in this Field. That's one of the things I work hardest around is people feeling personally attacked by some of my critiques of the system. When in reality, I'm trying to say we need to take collective responsibility, even if it wasn't you, it was our people. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I, I love the way that you say in your book, oftentimes, um, you say that adoption is tricky to talk about because as an adoptee, if you talk about um, if you talk about the things that are harmful to you, then you end up feeling like somebody is going to get hurt <laughs> and it'll just come back on you. So I I feel like that is one of the the work that you're doing, I think, is going to have so much healing by just creating a space so all these adoptees all of these kids all these adults all these um kids were you know like transnationally adopted so um they're not even in the country where they were born so the ability for them to feel connected and to find their identity um has been so severed so i feel like you're giving them a little bit of oxygen that says um you get to breathe here yeah and 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 we're for you, which is, um, you know, there's individual families, and I feel like most people know somebody touched by adoption, but I don't think that we often know how do we champion kids, how do we um, show up as their community. Yeah. So, like, what is just one or two ways that, like, if there is someone who has been adopted in our in our community, what is something that we could like say to them or just like be to just be in their corner as they navigate all of these things? It's the word you used earlier, validation. You know, I, I think it's um, working hard to avoid the stereotypes. And so that means validating whatever comes out of their mouth. And I remember working with an adoptee from Haiti, so an international adoptee who who had grown up thinking that Haiti was a bad place, that they were adopted and saved from a place where, you know, there's, there's no rule and um, it's pretty uncivilized. And so their conversation with me started out like, I'm really glad I'm adopted. I'm in a safer place. I love it in America. And I'm like, great. So what do you know about Haiti? And they were like, I would never want to go there. It's scary. It's bad. And they hadn't been there since they were a baby. And so I challenged them to think about, to, to look into this place. And they were stunned to learn that it had such like beauty, especially in the environment and outside of Port-au-Prince that it even existed outside of that capital city. And that, I think about that interaction a lot. It's, it seemed also insignificant and small, but I'm, I was reminded of all the times that we allow a narrative of this is bad and this is good to fester by just saying like, Oh, like someone could easily say to this kid, like, I'm so glad that you're here too. We love, having you in our family. Um, 
that in my brain doesn't do a lot because you've already probably validated that you love them and that, that you love that they're in your family. You've already done that. So, but like expounding, not just like on some place like Haiti, it could be a place like for me, Chattanooga, Tennessee place I didn't know about, but I would welcome anyone in Washington state to be like, I've been so curious about the South. I wonder what like crops are grown there. You know, just so that it's not only associated with negativity. You could do that around anything. That that was the strategy for the homelessness and the story we told earlier. It's like, don't allow adoptees, don't fall into that trap where you're going to perpetuate a stereotype about their lives when you don't even know if that's the truth. Yeah, and something that you mention a lot is that um, people are very comfortable assuming that better is best. So if someone is adopted, then obviously, you know, their life is better. But it, but one, it's different, not better. But I think people have this assumption that it's the best. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And, so and, and it's not, like, it's a, it's different. It's a, it's different. But like giving us space to to wonder what would life have been like if I was with my birth mother? And instead of first saying the negative, the most negative thing, like, I don't think she could have fed you. Maybe you wouldn't have had your own bed. Let's, since the adoption is finalized, let's just think about something positive. Like, wow, you would have gotten to know where you got your curly hair from. You would have, you would probably know like the exact moment of your birth how exciting. There are so many positive things. Like maybe you would learn that your family all loves bird watching. And so do you, you know, there's like <laughs> those things it's called biological privilege that we don't get. And people assume we don't need because we've gotten all of our other needs met is really infuriating. I think this is what I mean by validating, like validating the importance of that biological privilege, seeing someone who looks like you is a great place to start in terms of supporting adoptees and our, our identities and the stories. And I think it's really powerful for people to remember validation costs you nothing. You do not need to know everything. <laughs> you do not even have to have an opinion, but something that you've mentioned um, when we were talking um at a different time, you had said, just believe people. Yeah. And I think that that is this, uh, it's this place that we can totally step into. And and you it's don't like, need to be an expert like, on adoption. You don't need to like fix the problem. Just believe people because you're creating this reality of relationship where all things can be present together. The reason it's easier said than done is goes back to the emotionality and all of it that for someone to say like, Oh, Angela, I bet you really wish you knew where your birth, where your uh, sparse eyebrows come from. That's something I always wonder. I'm like, why do I have to draw in my eyebrows? Anyways, I wonder if you really, if you, you know, I bet you wish you always knew Th that comment for many people feels like a slam against my adoptive parents. And this is why people have a hard time validating our experiences because it's as though you're saying your adoptive parents aren't doing good enough. Even in reality, it has nothing to do with that. And then for adoptees, it causes us a sense of split loyalty or divided loyalty. Like we really need to almost protect our adoptive parents' feelings and that serves to silence yeah. us as well. Right. And as a parent, I'm like, no, never. <laughs> like, like there's this thing where it's this gift to um to be tough enough for your kids that lets them get to say and be all like at least kids are truth tellers. They absolutely can look around and say, you know, this isn't right. That's totally wrong. Um, and so I think of that as just something that whether you're a parent, whether you're a guardian, whether you're a friend, whether you're a teacher, a friends of a friends, like just being able to let to give people the dignity of having all of that. Um, and just to uh, just to mention, if anybody has any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. 
Um, but I also, because we are, we're, we are going to have to wrap up soon, but I really wanted you to be able to let people know a little bit about foster care. Um, there is a narrative of foster care that I think that people don't often get to hear from someone who, um, who is in your position, who actually is a kid who was in foster care. Like, what are we most getting wrong that you want people to get right if they can walk away from this? Sure. Also, side note, Diana, your eyes are so distracting because they are so bright and like, um, they're just, they're very expressive eyeballs, even through Zoom. I love that. Well, thank you. I've not, I've not gotten a ton of compliments. I live with all boys, so I will take all of the <laughs> compliment. <laughs> um, foster care, you know, it's always important to remind youth in care that they are not there because of anything that they've done. You know, we can feel very responsible for landing in foster care and getting that reminder is really helpful. We really need foster parents to love on our foster kids without reservation. I it really hurts my heart when people say like I wish I could foster care but I or I wish I could do foster care but I just couldn't let my heart get that attached and then have to give them back. And I just am so pained by that. I am really grateful for foster parents who loved me to the moon and back and I write in my book that I really credit their love as one of the reasons that I have healthy attachments today, like a healthy marriage and friendships, because they didn't just give me the basics. And that was, that was, I think it just mended something in my heart that was broken from losing my first mother. Um, I, I think it's also really key that that phrasing of it'd be too hard to give them back that that is out of people's vocabulary because what we want is for them to be with their biological family period end of story we don't want foster parents to be hoping that foster or biological parents can't do it because ultimately that is a message telling us that we are bad and we are wrong and that gets really twisted in our head so we have to be championing their first parents too. It's pretty awful to mentor adults who've been in foster care or adults who've been adopted who can't quite understand if that was necessary. And it goes back to their parents who may have started to create like a permanent decision of Term, terminate, terminating parental rights for a like a impermanent problem you know so I just I think that there's so much room not just to become a foster parent but to just be in a in the lives of a, a foster youth um I wish that it people felt that more deeply and understood that there are kids in their neighborhood who are in need of care it's not like just we're all over there and I think people think that you know yeah we were talking about how people think that foster kids are kind of this separate group of kids that somehow um are responsible for for that which doesn't make any sense because I look at kids everywhere I'm like oh my gosh they're at the mercy of like the adults in their lives and the decisions that mm -hmm. Um, people are making for them. And so I think it's really beautiful that your book is an invitation that we have collective um, care and kinship that says, you know what, somebody, any of us can have a tough time and someone else is going to um, step in and just say, you know what, you you take a minute, you take a hot minute and you, you can heal, you can get the help that you need, but your child is going to stay in the community yeah. And and we're all going to step in and care for them. Yeah. And there doesn't need to be a <laughs> a judgment about this. Um, this can be a collective care where nobody gets taken from a school and pushed somewhere else. Um, that we're going to build relationships that parents can count on to care for them and their children. Yeah, you're really cheerleading and championing the parents too. 
could be really beautiful. And I mean, if, if folks are looking for something that helps them feel better, which honestly, sometimes that is the impetus and we can't deny that either, then how great might it feel to help keep a family together? Right. And I have, um, I have birth mothers on both sides of my family and I don't, and I think we have, um, we have like one child who came to the family through adoption, very celebrated, but I feel like the birth mothers, I never heard about (laughs) until I'm pretty sure I was an adult. Mm -hmm. And I think how much being a mother, however it it happens is such a life changer and a definer forever. And this connection and responsibility that is changes your DNA. It's forever who you are. And so I think if there is this commitment to support, um, support moms and support birth mothers, whether or not their children are in their home or not, this is who they are. Oh, it's so huge. I mean, I, I wish that people would have told my birth mother, like, you can do this. And I don't think anyone did. And so that that rings true even still today when we hang and she's, you know, like you got great parents. I never could have done what they did for you. That kind of language is heart is really heartbreaking because it's like you you actually could have you didn't have support. My parents have a lot of support and they had a lot of privilege in our the way our country is designed. You didn't have that. But instead, she thinks that she herself could never have been a good parent. That is so tragic. And it feels like such a, such a failure from the community, you know, such a failure from um, that, that she, that she feels that way, that she hasn't had people come alongside her and, and just. So recently. Now there are are these really beautiful birth parent groups and she's gotten to attend a few of them. And that has been so awesome. You know, it's not, it's not exactly the community like we're talking about, but it's a community. Um, so that I've been really happy about that for her. Well, Angela, I am just so grateful that we've gotten to hear your voice. And I feel like you have brought this like hope and this challenge and this reimagining of collective care that I think is is truly going to change kids' lives. Like I, I know it is. And I know it's changed um, my my vision as um, an adoptive mom and as a community member who isn't just looking out for um, for where my kids are thriving, but where women who I might not know are moms are moms and they need that, that yeah. support. So um, we're going to wrap up, but I would love if you could um, tell us one practical step that we can become advocates um, for birth moms and for foster kids and for people who are adoptees? Sure. Um, one practical step. I think, you know, as you're watching Elf this holiday season to w- maybe just make a statement throughout watching that film, like, gosh, isn't it tragedy that he has to go searching for his family? Um, or it could be a little softer language, like, gosh, it's unique that we're entertained by this guy's journey to find his parents. Like, I wonder if that should be an entertainment value, or maybe this isn't a fun comedy after all. Yeah, I wonder just like implanting short little statements that just, uh, it just serves to disrupt our status quo, which I bring up Elf because that comes up every year in my mentoring that adoptees hate that it's on TV all the time and that people just love to watch it and laugh and stuff. It's not to say they don't think it's a funny movie, but just feeling erased, having people not understand that Will Ferrell's character is an adoptee and that search for our parents is awful and it's not really funny. And so, yeah, so one practical tip is like disrupt the narrative whenever there's an opportunity by just planting a quick question. Doesn't need to be a, let's sit down and hash this out, talk about the status of the world, but just a quick way to think about life a little bit differently. Think about the media that we consume a little bit, a little bit 
more, little less passive in understanding this is actually very real for a lot of us. You never know who it might impact. I think that makes so much sense on so many levels, and especially with the violence that we continue to see in our world. Yeah. Um, this like, is. I think people are doing it with football, for example. Like, there seems to be a, a better understanding now that this is such a violent, quote, sport. And so I feel like people are saying things like, I'm going to watch football today. I love football, even though I know it's just like so violent. And I feel like beautiful. This is great, right? You're making a conscious choice to understand what it is that you're consuming. That's what I want for adoption and foster care. Well, I am super, super grateful for your voice. And again, um, as you wrap up, everyone, um, buy this book because it is a compelling story that Angela weaves. And she is a really, really incredible writer. Like, I'm a wordy person where I'm like, ooh, that was beautiful. Like, I can, I can <laughs> touch it. I can taste it. Um, and so, Angela, this is really beautiful. And I think you are bringing so much justice and so much joy um, for so many folks. And then also asking other people to be aware, to start to notice and start to be an advocate for what love looks like in the streets, in our families, um, and not just out there but right here. So There's thank you so 7 million much. adoptees in the world. There's 400,000 kids in foster care in our country. So when you say that someone you know is touched by adoption foster care, like it's actually true. So that's why it's also important. Even if you feel like there's nobody in this house right now that's adopted or in foster care, it's you can still be impactful by being aware of your words and your media consumption choices and stuff like that because you your kids go to school with somebody who is, you know, or you go to work with someone who is. You just we're out there. We just don't have labels on our head so you don't know it. Yeah, and one last thing. I have two friends who are in their 50s and they're adopted and you wouldn't know it, but I'm like, every age group has people in your life. So don't assume that if they're <laughs> if they're over 18, this isn't still part of their story, that they are still figuring out belonging and the whys and the hows and their adoptive parents, you know? So every age is included in this community of people that we can start to love better for and advocate for. Just notice... So, Angela, thank you so much again, everybody. Uh, you should be grateful. Please follow her on Instagram, um, Angie the Adoptee. You will find her on Netflix with Closure. Um, just a super incredible story that brings so much power. Um, power and how we can continue to be part of that change. I'm going to uh, send it back to Shane to uh, send us out tonight. Well, I didn't miss a was so powerful. Thank you, Angela. Thanks, Diana. Uh, I feel like I got wiser in the last hour. I'm sure there's been a lot of comments, Angela, that folks are grabbing your book that haven't, folks that are grateful of our impact uh, in, in kind of really different ways by the things that you're talking about. And one of them is um, Katie Kirkpatrick, who worked with us forever, and well, for a long time, and we miss her hates getting a shout out but here you are she's tuning in tonight help help make all this happen and diana you're a gift always um so uh, follow angela tucker y'all she's a powerhouse on the social media she's also got her website we've mentioned a couple times angelatucker.com and the closure documentary um we can watch that and grab the book and keep following you so thank you angela um thank you so much yeah, so good. Let me just send us out. I was thinking of a quote from uh, a friend, Stan Loss, who often when people say, well, they had good intentions. Stanley, Stanley often says, it just shows you how much intentions matter. <laughs> but inten we, we need to go beyond good intentions, and you have helped us. So my prayer tonight as we go is that saved from good intentions and that we would become wiser and clearer and more careful uh, as we listen to folks like you, Angela. Um, so may we continue to listen and learn and evolve. I pray that we would all have 
room in our hearts and those of us that have houses we'd make room in our homes for folks that uh, need love and belonging and that we would all have a vision bigger than just biology for who our family is so thank you angela for all that you've offered us tonight and for diana for hosting we'll see y'all soon We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.